Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. If the temperature outside is a little warmer, trees are beginning to bud, you feel like you might be getting outdoors a little bit more, not quite as cold as it was. Well, guess what, folks? It really indeed might be spring in our beautiful Kentucky flower and fauna. So let's go outside. And uh, what better guide could we have for our great Kentucky outdoors than our very own Kentucky Humanities Speaker Bureau member, Valerie Askren, with her guidebooks and all of her information and everything that she brings uh, to you when she's a member of our Speakers Bureau. And also along with uh, five books she has written about uh, everything from fly fishing to backpacking. And we'll talk about a lot of those things. Uh, Valerie, uh, it's about time to get outside, isn't it? It absolutely is, Bill. Uh, In fact, if you hadn't pulled me in uh, to the office today, I would probably be out on the trail somewhere. But it's always a pleasure to come and talk with you. So thank thank you for having me. Are you outside all the time? Uh, I'm either outside, uh, typically with my 100-pound dog, who is my uh, constant companion out on the trail, or I'm sitting behind my computer at my desk at home. So which do you think I would prefer? (laughs) Well, you're also uh, quite a photographer extraordinaire. I mean, I uh, don't know if you classify yourself as a professional, but... uh, uh, professional enough to take your own photographs and insert those in many of your books, if not all of them. Uh, has that become also something that you've self-taught yourself? Oh, you're very kind to say so. Um, I, I think it, part of it's just being at the right place at the right time, where you have a particular wildflower in bloom, or the light is hitting a waterfall in a certain way. And so if you're out a lot, then you tend to have, I think, just more opportunities. In addition, I like to think of my books as almost armchair travel books, where you're not necessarily out on the trail, but you're sitting on the couch in front of a warm fire, and you're daydreaming about your next big adventure, and you've got a lot of visual interest in terms of where you want to go and what you want to see, and I think books can can bring you to the outdoors even though you're inside. Well, as I mentioned, Valerie is a member of our uh, Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, and She's um, um, out and about and available to come to your church or your social club, uh, your um, group that uh, is gathering, uh, hopefully uh, to uh, talk with you when uh, you're outside. Um, And there is a little small quiz on our Speakers Bureau uh, roster, and I'm just going to use that as a way to get into some of these subjects uh, that we are asking her to talk about today. Uh, The first question would be to all of you, uh, our favorite listeners out there, did you know that Kentucky has the second highest number of arches in the United States? Now, I don't know. We haven't talked. Let's, uh, full disclaimer here, Uh, I'm going to guess probably wrong that, would it be Utah? 
You are exactly right. All right, all right. That was a, 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 a big, wild guess. That was that. a good, excellent guess. I won't be able to name the orchids that we get to in just a few minutes. But <laughs> So we, we have the second most in the entire United States. Tell us about our arches and, and how to get to them. Uh, first of all, what, what makes up an arch? That's an excellent question. Um, most people think of an arch as a natural landform in which an archway has formed with an opening underneath. Here in Kentucky, we request or require that there has to be at least a minimum three-foot span in any one direction of the opening. However, the natu uh, Natural Arch and Bridge Society suggests one meter, so we're about three inches short, but about, about a yard. Usually an arch uh, is made of sandstone, which is a very soft, highly erodible stone. And then it's covered with typically a limestone or some other harder conglomerate rock. And then the softer rock, again, typically this, the sandstone, has eroded away. Once that erodes away and a natural uh, opening is formed, we call it a natural arch if the erosion is due to either wind or rain. If the erosion is due to water, such as a river or a creek or some type of stream running through the rock, then we call that a natural bridge. So there is a distinction between the two. So there's quite a geographic distance, of course, between Utah and, and Kentucky. Yes. Um, could you tell me uh, from, uh, I guess, an archaeological uh, standpoint, uh, why Utah would have more, why Kentucky is second, and there's not something in between uh, as the ice ages were formed mm -hmm. and rivers were flowing and we were all covered and then uh, the way arches are formed. Um, what What is the scientific reasoning behind all of that? Well, that's a really great question, question Bill. Um, both of our states have a lot of limestone as well as other capstone rocks that are harder and the sandstone again being more erodible. The main difference is out in Utah where you have huge open expanses, it's really easy to have wind erosion and in some cases rain erosion come in and create these natural arches or bridges. Here in Kentucky, we have a lot of karst topography and we have very steep um, hillsides in some places, lots of ravines. And the same thing that has created a lot of our spring-fed creeks, as well as a lot of our caves, such as in Mammoth Cave, are responsible for the geological changes that we see in landforms to create the arches. Now, there is a lot of competition, of course, between us and Utah, mm -hmm. which is considered the land of arches. Right now, Kentucky has well over 2,600 documented arches scattered all over the state, almost in every county, um, with over another 700 arches that have been identified um, but need further documentation. So while the number of arches in Utah has remained relatively constant, the number of new newly discovered arches in Kentucky continues to grow because so many of them are very difficult to get to. And so we have these arch hunters out there, which is kind of a fun concept, and they have just made it their passionate work to go and find these arches, document them, measure them, uh, photograph them, and put them in a huge database. So it's really an exciting time, I think, for Kentucky arches. 
And I have to tell you, truly uh, amazing uh, information that there are arches still to be discovered and some that are so remote that uh, uh, we all think of the ones that we can get to easily. Uh, but you're saying that uh, it, it does require some work to get to some of them. Uh, but tell us um, where people, and I would just also venture to say that just like uh, sometimes uh, we run into Kentuckians who live in the West, who've never been to the East and vice versa, maybe somebody who lives in the central part of the state in the cities have never been to the rural part of our great Commonwealth. Where can people, uh, where do you suggest they go to first of all, see their first arch or many arches, and then some of the maybe harder to be seen or harder to get to arches. Okay, well, I think a great starting point goes back to this database that I referred to that is run by an incredible group of volunteers. If you go to kyarches.com, it's a wonderful, wonderful website that talks about the taxonomy or the basic types of arches and talks a little bit about something called arch abuse, uh, which unfortunately is the uh, deterioration of arches caused by people going to visit. Um, but one of the, the other incredibly valuable components of the website is a map. You open up the map and it's a state of the Kentucky, um, state of Kentucky, and on the map you will see either red or blue arch icons that are scattered all over the state. If you zoom into the particular part of the state that you live in or that you're going to visit, you click on that icon and it will open up with a picture of the arch, a description of the arch, um, tell you about the size of the arch, who discovered the arch, um, as well as the photographer of the picture that you're looking at. It also has GPS lat longitude um, numbers, and so if you want to actually go visit that arch, you can zoom in on the map and either see some of the roads and the access points, or you can use those GPS coordinates to actually get to the arch. So some of them are really difficult to get to. Yes, some of them are. Very and have difficult. you been? Have you been to some of the more difficult ones? Could you tell us about some of those treks? I would say I've been to some of the more difficult ones. Um, part of the challenge is almost half of the arches are located in the Daniel Boone National Forest, and that's on federally owned land. Mm -hmm. But yet, there's another quarter of the arches that are located on private land. And so unless you know the landowner, you really shouldn't be traipsing around. Um, but I, I see some others uh, that are identified, and uh, these are surprising uh, to me. Well, McCrary County, for one, mm -hmm. uh, the, the natural arch uh, south of um, Burnside and north of Whitley City. Uh -huh. But did I also see reference, and I'm just looking at some notes here, um, near Paducah? Yes, actually the largest arch that we have here in the state and the only official major arch is a place called Mantle Rock. And you're correct, it's located just on, in the western part of the state, just north of Land Between the Lakes and northeast of Paducah. It's very easy to get to. It's very close to the Ohio River. And it is what we call an alcove arch, and it has a span of 156 feet, mm. but it's only 30 foot tall. 
So it's a relatively short arch in terms of height, but again, its span is the longest that we have in the state. And that would be, I mean, you would think in West Kentucky, uh, certainly near the, the lake region, it is so flat, but uh, this arch, is it, is it in a flat area? Uh, relatively so. It's it's very close to the river, and so huh. over the years, as the river has changed course, you've had um, a lot of uh, local water and stream movement, which has eroded the limestone rock um, to create the natural arch. Yeah. Surprisingly, um, most people probably aren't aware, but there is a lot of underground spring-fed movement in western Kentucky, and the streams are over there um, are very cold. They're cold year-round. They flow year-round, which incidentally makes them really good trout waters. Um, but that is why we, we have some of the arches over there in the western part of the state. And what uh, delineates uh, a major arch? You, you call this one a major arch. Does that have to do with the size of it? Right. It has to do with the span. The span mm-hmm. has to be at least 50 meters or more. And uh, you also have a, a, a nice note here about how they get their names and, and who names them and that sort of thing. So tell us a little bit about uh, some of the names that uh, people come up with. <laughs> well, the naming of an arch is basically up to the arch hunter who is responsible for, quote, discovering the arch. And sometimes the arch hunter might want to name it after a loved one. Sometimes they'll name it... Um, due to maybe a unique um, oh, geomorphic structure of the arch. It might have a lot of pillars or it might have a skylight, so they might incorporate that into the name of the arch. And then what's happened over the years as we've continued to discover more and more arches across the state, we end up with some arches that have the same name. For example, we have several natural arches and we have several named Rock Bridge. And so that's led to a lot of confusion. And then we also have some arches that have multiple names for them. For example, in Laurel County, we have the Wilderness Road Arch, which is also known as the Hospital Arch because it's on an old battlefield. Mm. Uh, Furthermore, some arches have numbers attached to them. So in Red River Gorge, some of our arches have a number um, RR, for Red River, and then the number of the arch. For example, Gray's Arch is RR27. So we have a lot of confusing names and um, multiplicity of names. And so what's happened over the years is it's been really important for us to kind of nail down just how many arches we have and where they're located. And this is where this database comes into play. And it, again, it's just been, been a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. Well, let's, uh, we'll, we'll leave arches in just a moment and go to waterfalls, but before we uh, do, I just want to clarify, um, you, you said that uh, some of the arches now are deteriorating uh, because of, of traffic, because of, and I'm sure other things like climate change and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, elements that are uh, over time will destroy anything. Um, is there an effort to curtail um, tourists or uh, hikers from traveling to some of these areas? I mean, is it getting to that point? Should we be more conscious as we are of of leaving the trail and going off trail, of uh, destroying some of the 
uh, foliage and that sort of thing that that, uh, we might do if we get off trail? Sadly, you're exactly right, Bill. And if you look at all of the major arches in the state, Natural Bridge, Sky Bridge and Red River Gourd, Mantle Rock, um, Rock House Natural Bridge uh, on the Cumberland River below Wolf Creek Dam, all of them have suffered from scratchings, engravings, mm. paintings, chalking, and it's, it, it's terribly unsightly, um, to say the least. It's extremely damaging to the arch itself. Skybridge Arch alone has over 1,000 carvings and other markings on it. What the park rangers and volunteers have tried to do is they come in with brushes and sanding equipment, sometimes even grinding equipment, to try to move these, remove these unsightly marks. But if they're too deep into the rock, then there's a danger of actually doing damage, further damage to the arch itself. So when you ask the question, have you been to some of these more hidden arches, I'm always a little tentative to answer a question like that because many of these arches, the reason they're so hard to get to is because of extremely steep terrain. They um, frequently are encrusted with rhododendrons. I don't know whether you've ever heard of the term a rhododendron hell, Mm. H-E-L-L, which is the same thing as a rhododendron thicket. Mm, And because these soils are highly erodible, when people go to look for these arches, we are doing a lot of damage to the ecosystem itself, as well as potentially to the arch. Well, um, people have to be aware of that, and it's good uh, information for you to uh, to tell them about uh, when they're going uh, arch hunting. Uh, and now waterfall hunting. Uh, again, one of those uh, incredible numbers of, uh, of that we you're bringing our attention to. Uh, there are so many waterfalls in Kentucky, and people, I don't think I've ever run into anyone who doesn't love a waterfall. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And sometimes people will ask me, well, what's your favorite waterfall? And typically my favorite is always the one that I'm standing right in front of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sound of water, the peacefulness of water, the excitement of water, I think tends to, tends to move humanity. And for the same reason that we have so many natural arches in the state of Kentucky is one of the reasons we have so many waterfalls. You know, that steep terrain, um, fairly erosive, the sandstone eroding, so on and so forth. So as a result, uh, we have over 11,000 documented waterfalls in the state. And uh, to um, qualify to be in the database, they have to be at least five foot in height. So that that can vary tremendously in terms of width, but we do like to see them five foot in height, uh, where these volunteers go in and measure them with a laser rangefinder to confirm that they're actually eligible to be included in the database. And I would imagine too that volume of water might have something to, to do with it because maybe a lot of the waterfalls during the dry season completely are without water? That's true, Um, particularly the ones that are really high up in the drainage. Um, Let me give you an example of, um, oh, 
Copperas Falls and Red River Gorge. It's a plunge waterfall, absolutely one of my favorites. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. gorgeous. But the drainage that forms the waterfall Mm -hmm. is relatively short. It is spring-fed, but it doesn't have a very large drainage. And so as a result, if you get really heavy rains, the heavy rains are going to fall over that ledge relatively quickly, and within a day or two, it's going to be back to its normal level. Compare that with something like Cumberland Falls, which has a drainage of thousands of acres and miles and miles of rivers and streams um, up into northeastern, or pardon me, southeastern Kentucky. When you have such a large drainage, it takes a while for all of that water to accumulate and actually get down to the waterfall itself, and then it might last for several days or even weeks before it all clears out. Uh, tell us about some of your um, other favorite uh, spots and waterfalls, the ones that you like to visit, uh, the largest ones. Uh, you have um, uh, some of the most beautiful that you've uh, talked about um, and that you've mentioned and that, that you have. Uh, I want you to tell us about a, a couple of others uh, that we can get to uh, and not necessarily relatively easy. I mean, Cumberland Falls, you, you walk out and you uh, gaze over and there it is, but I know some uh, require some work. That's right. That's right. Um, Copperas Falls is one that <clears throat> used to require, pardon me, <clears throat> used to require a lot more work to get to than it, it does today. Uh, it's off of an unmarked trail, an unofficial trail in the Red River Gorge. It used to be just a small faint path that you had to follow for a couple of miles in order to get to the falls. Well now, because of social media, in and different apps it has become so popular that now it looks like you know four four to five foot wide trail Hmm. so it has lost i think some of its natural beauty but it still remains my favorite for a couple of reasons one is that in order to get to the falls you have to go along a creek which you might have 10 12 14 creek crossings in order to get to the waterfall, which to me, that's part of the fun. It's part of the Mm -hmm. challenge of of getting to the waterfall. What is the trail? Or it it has no name? It really has no name. Um, And again, it is spelled uh, C-O-P-P-E-R-A-S and pronounced? Copperas. Copperas. And what is that word? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. We'll have to look that up and see what that is. Yeah, that would be good to look up. Um, And what are, okay, so copperas. What what uh, what about uh, now? Do you pronounce it? I always have Yahoo or Yahoo. <laughs> it is Yahoo, isn't it? I believe it's Yahoo. Yeah. I think that's the way the locals pronounce it. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm stuck with Yahoo, so it, oh, okay. it's, it's okay. been hard for right, me to convert. Right. Okay, um, it's one of my favorite falls. It's it's very easy to get to. Uh, it's probably I don't know maybe a quarter mile. Mm-hmm. Easy, easy walk. It's located um, very far down in uh, southeastern Kentucky in the Big South Fork National Recreation Area, which is just a- absolutely stunningly beautiful. Yahoo Falls is a plunge falls. It's one of um, our tallest falls. They, they like to say that they're the tallest, but they're actually not. Um, but because it's on public land, I think more people know about mm-hmm. uh, Yahoo Falls than some of the other taller ones. One of the reasons why Yahoo Falls has always been of interest to me is because of a persistent legend that has never truly been um, 
solidified or proven one way or the other, but yet this legend has persisted for many, many years. And it involves a young Cherokee woman named Princess Corn Blossom, who was the daughter of the war chief Doublehead. And in 1810, Princess Corn Blossom was leading a group of about 20 or 30 Cherokee women and children to a Methodist school that was located 125 miles away outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. As they were uh, leaving the area, they were told that John Sevier, who was a famous uh, leader of the, of, uh, had his own frontier militia out of Tennessee, uh, who were very um, anti-Indian, anti-British. And unfortunately, as the story goes, John Sevier and his band of men massacred many of the women and children. Uh, that were hiding underneath Yahoo Falls. Princess Corn Blossom was able to escape um, and later told of this story. And there's another beautiful waterfall located, oh, maybe five miles from Yahoo Falls called Princess Falls, and it's named in her honor. Mm. There. Uh, Severe, John Severe, uh, Severeville, Tennessee. Correct. People are, are familiar with that, that uh, town near uh, Gatlinburg. Um, Correct. Well, that's a. Uh, uh, a tragic story, uh, but but certainly uh, I'm sure historically uh, true. Um, what is it again about um, about a waterfall um, that that you love to to be near? I I've always felt like that if you couldn't have an ocean, uh, a waterfall is pretty darn close uh, <laughs> as far as uh, a meditative. Uh, a type of environment that you just want to go and, and be still by. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right, Bill. Um, another, another explanation, and I, I'm not a chemist, so I'm not sure of the intricacies of this, but when water falls over a ledge or a, um, a rock outcropping, a lot of ozone is released into the air. And if you've ever noticed when you're at the base of a waterfall, you can smell the ozone just like you can after a rainfall. And I've been told that that ozone um, almost has a, um, oh, kind of a soothing but yet invigorating effect on the brain. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've always wondered if that's part of it. I think the sound of the waterfall uh, whether it's a roaring, rushing sound or just kind of a faint tinkling, I think is always intriguing to the ear. And then, of course, typically you're out in a beautiful area, so you have the entire uh, ecosystem around mm -hmm. you, maybe some birds or some beautiful flowers. So it, it's the whole package, I think, that comes together for me as to why I love waterfalls. Well, we're talking to uh, Valerie Askren of our uh, Kentucky Humanities uh, Con uh, Speakers Bureau. Valerie's available to... Uh, speak to you about the great outdoors in Kentucky and elsewhere. Uh, she speaks on a number and a variety of um, outdoor topics um, from fly fishing to uh, flowers uh, to hiking and arches and uh, just a, an extraordinary amount of information that she can impart uh, and I, I, I know she won't cover all of the uh, uh, areas that she is an expert in but uh, she can narrow that down for you. And we're going to hear more from her and kind of end up our conversation uh, with uh, hiking and wildflowers right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University.
Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. Valerie, um, let's do take a hike. And uh, as we uh, take a hike, uh, let's go um, wildflower uh, hunting. Uh, there's really not anything more pleasant uh, than to relax a little bit, uh, to take a deep breath, to not try to um, break a record uh, or break anything else by going too fast, <laughs> and just take it easy and uh, be with someone uh, or with your wildflower uh, book in hand and go into uh, a Kentucky forest um, which might be right beside a busy road or uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, could be McConnell Springs right mm -hmm. off of, uh, of a, a busy highway, uh, or it could be in the Red River Gorge or any of the Daniel Boone uh, National Forest. Uh, and and how, do you like to, how do you like to go wildflower flower hunting? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a heck of a question. Um, sometimes by myself, um, or sometimes with a good friend. Uh, I have one friend in particular who is just a wildflower maven. And so when I'm sitting there stumbling over the names and identification of flowers, she can help fill them in. And so that's wonderful, have some, having somebody there next to you in real time to sit and ooh and all over the wildflowers. And in Kentucky, I think we're really fortunate in that we have an incredible wildflower display that typically starts about, oh, maybe mid-February, and it will last until the first hard freezes, you know, maybe into December. And so we have hmm. this constant array of colors and heights and textures that, that you can go out and enjoy pretty much any time of the year. And um, when doing that, uh, as I mentioned, you, you can stay in the city uh, in a park or you can be in the woods, uh, in the forest. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you like to go uh, look for wildflowers? Well, I think you've raised a really good point, Bill. Um, there are a lot of urban areas, for example, Cherokee Park in Louisville, um, the Ashland Estate here in Lexington that have some gorgeous wildflowers. Right now, the yellow and white trout lilies are up, and you can see those in a lot of urban parks, um, as well as the spring beauties. And so if you keep your eyes open, it's really kind of surprising how wildflowers can literally be right underneath your feet. And so you, you don't have to go deep into the woods to be able to enjoy them. So tell us about some of the wildflowers uh, that are blooming now as uh, we're uh, airing this uh, podcast for the first time, and then some that will be coming up a little bit later in the spring. 
Okay. Uh, well, I was just out yesterday uh, over at Asbury Trails, which is located outside of Wilmore, Kentucky, on property that's owned by the college there. And it's probably one of my favorite places in central Kentucky to go look for wildflowers. It's not a, a huge area, but they do have a really nice selection. And this is some that I saw yesterday, but um, reading people's blogs, uh, I see it's the same things that are pretty much blooming all over the state. Uh, one flower that's always an all-time favorite that's at the end of its blooming cycle is the bloodroot. It's a flower that's in the poppy family and is just a gorgeous white, almost translucent collection of petals. Bloodroot had been um, a traditional medicine used by many American Indian tribes to treat fever and rheumatism, but currently it's also being studied for use as an anti-cancer agent, particularly for the treatment of skin cancer and, for dissolving, uh, and as a dissolving agent for skin growth such mm -hmm. as warts. So sometimes when I look at these wildflowers, I don't just think about the beauty, but I also go back in, in my uh, recesses of my brain and try to think about some of the history of them. Another flower that's blooming right now is Larkspur, uh, which is a beautiful, oh, maybe 12 inch tall flower of pale la lavender and deep purple blooms. Another one that's blooming is a Cecil Trillium, that's also known as toad shade, which I just always have to smile at the name of that toad shade. Uh, Virginia bluebells are also blooming right now, as is saxifrage. Saxifrage is a uh, white, um, oh, maybe six inch tall um, flower, cluster of white flowers. And the Latin word saxifrage Fragia uh, means literally stone breaker. So usually you will see that on cliffs or piles of stone um, that have, have uh, formed on a hillside. And then some other favorites that are blooming right now are Dutchman's breeches, uh, which if you turn them upside down, they look like the white pantaloons uh, <laughs> of a Dutchman. Dutchman's breeches. Breeches or uh -huh. breeches, uh -huh. um, as well as the close relative called squirrel corn. Oh, those are so interesting, and the names are fascinating. The and, names and, are fun. Yeah. yeah. So uh, coming up, you've also got a, a nice list of things to look for. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of my all-time favorite Kentucky wildflower is either the pink or the yellow lady slipper. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, the slipper itself is so small, I always joke that Cinderella could never get her foot into mm -hmm. it, but it has a very showy, just gorgeous bloom. And surprisingly, Kentucky also has quite a few uh, other types of orchids scattered across the state. Um, in the boggy areas, you tend to see a, the yellow fringed orchid which is about 12 to 24 inches tall. And they, it's called yellow fringe, but at times to me it looks a little bit more orange. And then there's also showy orchids. Both the showy and the lady slippers um, are easily found all over Red River Gorge, um, parts of the Big South Fork, and all through the Daniel Boone National Forest. Uh, another flower I really like is the shooting star. I tend to like the name of this one, as well as it's, it's a beautiful flower, also known as the American cowslip or a rooster head, which those are old timey names you typically don't hear people use anymore. And they tend to range in color from either a very pale white, almost a lavender color, 
to a very dark pink that's just a very rich magenta. Jack in the pulpits are an interesting flower that are very easily overlooked because they tend to have very uh, green or brownish green, green coloring to them. So you don't have that bright splash of color like you do with other wildflowers. But it's interesting in that it was named for its resemblance to a preacher. So if you open up the top flap of the flower that forms the Jack in the pulpit, you'll see Jack there. And, he, and his overhanging pulpit, which makes the plant an easy name to remember. But this is where it gets kind of interesting. For Jack in the pulpits, the flowers typically bloom in May and June, and they initially, when they're young, only produce male flowers. But as they get older, after they've been established for maybe four or five years, Jack will develop male flowers on the top and female flowers on the bottom. Mm. So in nature, we call this a hermaphroditic in that they have members of the both, both sex mm -hmm. on the same plant. However, Jack and the pulpits are not self-pollinating because the mature male flowers will die before the young female flowers mature. But this is actually good in that the female flowers end up being pollinated by male flowers from another plant. And so therefore you have a lack of inbreeding, which is good to keep the species healthy. Well, that, that's, that's pretty fascinating in itself. Uh, and, and those are coming up. And, and real quickly, uh, Mountain Laurel, people might have heard of the Mountain Laurel Festival, but it's mm -hmm. not called that for, for no reason at all. That's correct. Uh, it takes place in Pineville, started in 1931, and uh, hence the, its namesake, uh, Laurel County. Um, mountain laurels typically start blooming, usually about May. They come out and they're interesting in that when the blooms very first start to open, they're pink. And it's a pretty true pink, but as the bloom matures and gets older after several days, it actually turns white. So in a big field of mountain laurels, which is usually up on a hilltop, they like to be up in the ridges um, of Kentucky, you will see a, a whole field of them with both the pink and the white flowers mixed together. And you've got, your note here is that the festival has been held since 1931? Correct. Wow. Correct. That yeah. really goes back. Yeah, then they have representatives from all over the state um, who participate, and then every year they crown the uh, yeah. Mountain Laurel Queen. Well, once again, uh, uh, our good listeners, uh, Valerie is available uh, to your uh, group, your club, your church, um, any place that uh, a gathering of more than two uh, that you would like to hear so much more about all of the things that she is such an expert in. And as we close out uh, our podcast today, uh, I'm going to put her on the spot once again and, and make her commit to her First of all, favorite hike in Kentucky? Oh my gosh. Well, it's kind of like waterfalls, Bill. My favorite hike is the one that I'm on at any given point in time. I think geographically, um, my favorite hikes tend to be uh, either in the Red River Gorge or in the Big South Fork. 
and partly because I just love that ecosystem. I love the towering hemlocks. I love the bubbling streams. I love the greens, the evergreens of the rhododendrons and the mountain laurel. It's it's just a beautiful, beautiful ecosystem 365 days a year. Favorite waterfall? Oh, I'd go back to either, well, probably copperas. That would probably be my favorite, although I'm a little hesitant to say because we certainly don't need any more people trampling on that trail. Um, but it is an absolutely stunning place to be. And favorite wildflower among the hundreds that are out there, mm. if not thousands? I'd say the yellow lady slipper followed by the pink lady slipper. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's see, did I leave out any of the favorites? Uh, we, we didn't touch uh, on your, well, your latest book. Let's just uh, briefly mention your latest book. Uh, briefly, just give us a sketch of, uh, of uh, Louisville and what you've done uh, with uh, suggesting to people from all over the world, if not all over Kentucky, what they can find in uh, Kentucky's largest city. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, hiking uh, hiking Louisville, pardon me, Louisville in southern Indiana just came out this spring. Uh, it's brand new for 2023. It's the second edition um, of a previous version of the book that I had done. Louisville is a really interesting place in that we tend to think of it as being highly urbanized because of it being um, in the largest city in Kentucky. However, there are a huge number of public parks that were uh, designed and built by one of the, um, who, who, a man who was considered the, the father of landscape architecture is basically his name, Frederick Law Olmsted. And Olmsted and his sons designed a lot of the parks in Louisville as well as Ashland Park in Lexington. Uh, in addition, Jefferson County, where Louisville's located, also has a huge national forest. They have four natural arches. They have several waterfalls. So there are a lot of opportunities to get out and about in Louisville that I think a lot of people just are not aware of. Uh, in addition, Louisville is in the process of creating what they call the Louisville Loop which will be a 100-mile trail that goes all the way around basically the perimeter of, of Louisville. Um, part of it's paved, um, which is open to hikers, walkers, bicyclists, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the, the park system, Parklands of Floyd Park, also has about 40 miles of hiking trail. So there's, there's just so much happening in Louisville right now, um, park-wise, that it's just been a wonderful show of public investment as well as private sector interest to uh, keep Louisville green. And finally, uh, your fly fishing uh, book, which came out in 2022, is that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and you are um, a fly fisher person. Correct. Um, and so that book is about where to fly fish in Kentucky as well as about tying and flies and uh, yeah yeah th I think that's a good way to describe it Bill the the first half of the book is more of a how to do it manual mm -hmm. what kind of rods and fly lines as well as flies that emulate um, a lot of the natural insects that we have here or kind of tease the fish um, the first half of the book is really more descriptive in terms of how to fly fish for trout here in the state of Kentucky. The second half of the book is more where to go, 
How do you get there? How are the streams and tailwaters stocked? Uh, where do you park? Where are the good holes or rocks that you want to fish behind? So it's a little bit more um, of the places to go for fly fishing in the yeah. state. Well, it's been a joy uh, to talk with you. Uh, it would be any time of the year, but especially since Aww. we are looking forward to a little bit warmer weather and a, a, a time that uh, some of us uh, like to get out uh, rather than, I know you do a lot of winter hiking too, and I, I do. have done that, but the older I get, the, the less of that I do. Uh, so I'm looking forward to some warmer weather and, and getting out to the to the great outdoors in, in Kentucky. So again, um, a call on Valerie for uh, great uh, talks and information on any of these subjects, she, she'd be glad to uh, to come see you. So thanks again for being here. Thank you, Bill, for having me. I really appreciate it, and I hope to see you out on the trail. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.